This is The Guardian. Today, stories from on the ground in Israel and Gaza. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. The last few days have been somehow from a different world. You often look at other people when the world crashes and you can't imagine how it is and all of a sudden you are in the center. This is Sharon Lifshitz. She lives in London but grew up in a kibbutz in Israel near the border with the Gaza Strip. That's where her parents still live. They were there on Saturday morning when Hamas fighters broke in. My father' last conversation was with my, my uncle at 8:30 in the morning, and in that conversation, my father said that my mom is asleep. My mom takes a medication in the morning that makes her drowsy, that he can hear the people outside, um, and then we lost contact with them. My mom is 85, she takes oxygen at night, she's under a lot of medication. My father is 83 and frail. I do not believe that my father, who also fought in four wars for Israel, could ever have imagined what is about to happen. What exactly happened next? Sharon has no idea. But her family now fear her parents may have been taken across the border into Gaza. My brothers went back to my parents' house um, and it was all burnt down. And over there, everything that I grew from is destroyed. The shock of what happened on Saturday in Israel is still shaking the world. More than a thousand Hamas fighters breached the walls that have caged the Gaza Strip for more than 16 years and went on a killing rampage that continued for hours before they met any kind of serious resistance. At least 1,200 Israelis, the vast majority civilians, are dead, the worst single-day toll in Israeli history. And in retaliation... Israel has launched its most severe bombing campaign ever in Gaza. More than a thousand people there are dead. Hospitals are running out of what they need to treat the wounded. Soon there won't be electricity to run equipment. And people there have nowhere to run, including more than a hundred Israelis and others being held in Gaza as human shields. And it's an unfolding situation. There is an invasion of Gaza. My parents will always talk about how sorry they are for the people of Gaza. My mom will talk about the mothers in Gaza. And now they are in Gaza, and I can't quite, none of us can quite know what to do with it. 
What's happening in the Middle East right now is terrible and it's complex, the result of decades of political failure. And the conversation around it these past few days has been polarising and full of hatred and so dehumanising. And what can get lost in all that noise is the ordinary people who are suffering, who are going to suffer the most. And today, we're going to hear some of their stories. From The Guardian, I'm Michael Safi. Today in Focus, a human catastrophe in Israel and in Gaza. My elderly parents are part of a kibbutz called Nir Oz, and uh, it lies about um, less than a mile from the Gaza Strip. My parents have been founding members. They've been there 65 years or something. I grew up there all my life. It's a magical place for my son, who is 12, and it's on the border with Gaza. We had many years. We live very, very close. So we hear the bombing. We see the bombing when they bomb them. But we also used to having a degree of belief in some security. But there has been a massacre. These were defenseless elderly people, children, babies, mothers. This is a peaceful community, a rural community, um, and they have been slaughtered. Over 20 were killed. Um, we think there are about 50 that are being held hostage. Oh, my God. Um, I have to also say that this is a peace-loving community. My father was a peace activist all his life. He spent his retirement up to now spending one or two days a week taking a car from the kibbutz and going to the border with Gaza Strip and picking up ill people and people that need treatments in hospitals in East Jerusalem and in other hospitals in Israel. People must remember we have relationship with these people. These people were our friends as well. People work. My brothers employed many people from Gaza Street after the border was closed. And yet, this is a level of cruelty and destruction that none of us, none of us ever imagined. The whole place is gone. It's simply gone. The buildings are all burned to the ground. You said that 20 people from this community have been killed and and maybe 50 have been taken hostage. How have you pieced that together? How are you getting information about what happened on Saturday? Up until this moment, very little has been uh, done in the sense of informing us. There's a huge amount of work being carried by the children of these members and uh, other people that are connected, several WhatsApp groups of kibbutz people, people that left like me, the kibbutz, but grew up there. There's about 400 people in the kibbutz. About 100 of them are missing, dead, or injured. The army took seven hours to arrive and there were several hours of fighting. Most of these people have spent about 10 or 12 hours 
stuck in the room that is designed against bombs. So we have a secure room and they have been stuck in there and talking to our their friends and family. There's people with dementia, the list of elderly, frail and children that were taken is not something that we are built to comprehend. Now, we have to amplify and spread and make it possible to negotiate the release of elderly people, of children and mothers. We have to do that. These are not soldiers. These are 85-year-old parents that had to be disconnected from the medications and from their oxygen and from their care. Mm. What, what, what have you won? You know, I mean, there's no doubt that that was amazing. Okay, you have achieved. But holding on to 150, it, it's just, what, what, I mean, you against my father, what, what are you doing? He's an 83-year-old man. He's really getting more frail. I'm afraid for him standing on a chair, let alone being, what, what is being gained by it? Hmm. Can you tell me about your parents? They grew up in a youth movement that was on the, very much on the left, so very much uh, not communist, but uh, true socialists and very um, ideological. And they came to the kibbutz. And my father liked my mom. He was two years younger than her. It took him a, her a year to say yes, and they got married and um, worked very hard in the fields, met uh, many Palestinians on the ditch that was the border between Israel and Gaza, and it's part of Egypt. Back in the 50s, he was plowing the fields, and he would sit with the UN soldiers and people from uh, Palestine, and they will have long chats. And I think that was another element that really formed his uh, view of the world. He also then was traveling, as I said, twice a week or once a week and taking to an organization, um, supporting Palestinians by taking people that with cancer and other illnesses. And he just told me in the last visit that he's so delighted because he was he can still drive and he feels safe though we all doubt how safe he was <laughs> and um, and that he got a, his license for two more years and so he let them know that he can continue in that work and he felt that you know you just need to do what you can which he continued to do you know he's 83 you know my mom is somebody that I'd like to think of my mom really supporting people my parents lost a child when I was six weeks old, when I was a year old, and she always connected to other people when they went through a difficult time in their life. And I know she would be trying her best to make a bad situation better. I know that my father, we all think that hopefully he's sitting there telling them all the stories about all the things, and we speak Arabic. So, I hope that he can um, make it better. Sharon, I think everyone listening to this would be 
praying or, or, or hoping that we get good news about your parents and everyone who's been kidnapped as quickly as possible? I think it's really important. You know, my father would have said, why are you fighting for me? This is ridiculous. What do you need? I mean, he would think it's hilarious that I fight for him when there are children <laughs> and when there are, you know, mothers and people that are the future, as he will call it. Um, but my mom will say, let her fight. If she wants, let her fight, you know. And so <laughs> I am, I am, you know, I'm listening to both of them. And my friend's daughter is there. She's got, she's autistic. She's a beautiful, beautiful soul. She's there with her eight-year-old mom. And her mom, other grand, three grandchildren are there. I cannot tell you the level of, you know, I just cannot tell you how many families and parents, you know, we are trying to compile the list. And I myself, I, you know, you look at this uh, Google document and here you go, you know. This is like walking into the dining room, on, you know, on Thursday morning, lunchtime. And we have to advocate for them now. We have to press on our government here in the UK, everybody that can, to, to help negotiate the safe return. Time is very, very short. My mom and dad will not survive very long. Other people will not survive very long. We need to do it now. Bethan McKernan, you're The Guardian's Jerusalem correspondent, and you spent the past few days travelling across Israel trying to make sense of the weekend's attack. I can't imagine the things you've seen over the past few days. What's it been like? I wasn't supposed to be in Jerusalem, but I was out reporting with, with my photographer colleague yesterday afternoon when we got the message that Hamas was going to... Hamas said that Everyone in the city of Ashkelon had 90 minutes to leave and didn't elaborate, which meant that there was going to be a lot of incoming rocket fire. So we kind of made the executive decision to not try and drive back into Ashkelon and just to go straight to Jerusalem. And turns out that was a really good decision because our hotel was directly hit by a rocket. Oh, my God. Yeah, so all my stuff is in. I mean, everyone was okay. Um, um, it hit a car underneath the balcony where my room was. So yeah, I'm still kind of processing that. But I'll be going back down um, tomorrow, I think. Yeah. Days since Saturday, it still sounds like it's so dangerous and unpredictable. Basically, anywhere close to that border. I mean, not even close to the border. Hamas has been able to reach the outskirts of Jerusalem, so that's central Israel, since the 2014 war. And, you know, their capabilities have only gotten better since then. So, you know, technically, nothing is safe in the bottom half of Israel. And then in the north, there's been rocket fire from Lebanon, some of which has been claimed by Hezbollah and some of which has been claimed by Palestinian factions. 
So there's nowhere safe, really. And obviously Gaza is, I mean, it looks like hell on earth right now. And there's been clashes in the West Bank and in Jerusalem between soldiers and Palestinians and residents of East Jerusalem and also settlers. So you can wear a flak jacket and you can stay near bomb shelters and you can kind of prepare for the more conventional expected things in a war. But what if some Hamas guy just pops out of a house on the street. I mean, what are we going to do then? There's basically nothing you can do about that. And that did happen in the last couple of days. So there's no playbook for how anyone is supposed to protect themselves from this. And that's the same in Gaza also. The bombing has been... They're hitting Gaza with five times of the firepower that they used on Lebanon in the 2006 war with Hezbollah. And I mean, this is a a 42 by 12 kilometer tiny strip home to 2.3 million people and they can't leave. So it's awful. What is it that we've learned about how this attack was actually carried out by Hamas? They studied so carefully how the Israeli army works. I mean, there are senior members of Hamas in the the military wing who have intimately studied how the IDF fights and they've learned Hebrew. And they have basically spent the last 16 years preparing for this, preparing to to end the siege. And they lured everybody into thinking that they were weak and they could only manage to disrupt daily life in Israel every so often with, with rocket barrages. And instead, they were figuring out how to dismantle one of the most high-tech surveillance and security systems in the world Because I think they figured out that all the cameras and all of the equipment is is designed to look inwards into Gaza and not outwards into Israel. And once they got through, as we saw, right, they they ran amok. But I think, and it was so it was so secretive that even Ismail Haniya, the political leader of Hamas was reportedly not aware that this was going to happen. So it's really exposed the massive divide in in the organisation between the military wing and the political wing, who had told everybody that they wanted to be recognised as a legitimate government and a legitimate organisation. And they would have known exactly where they were going, but I think they didn't expect to do as well as this. Um, they didn't expect it to take, in some cases, five, six, seven hours before the army and Israeli security forces showed up to stop them. And you went to the site of one of the massacres that's been the most prominent in the news since Saturday, which was the one at the Supernova Music Festival, about three miles from the Gaza Strip border. Tell me about what you saw when you got there. Well, as we were driving down, there were obviously a lot of checkpoints and people being asked who they were and why they needed to go down that road. And it was very, 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 very quiet and very flat and very eerie. I mean, you could see Gaza right there, right? And there was all these plumes of black smoke rising above it as it was being bombed. So that in itself was a very shocking 
thing to see. And then as we got closer to the kibbutz, it's called Reim, we began to see, you know, more evidence of, of that something really terrible had happened there. Abandoned cars, like the doors flung open, the windows shot out, traces of blood, clothes, shoes, and lots and lots and lots of spent ammunition. And then when we got to the outskirts of the kibbutz, there were five bodies of the fighters who had come from Gaza. There were no bodies of the partygoers and the civilians, but they'd left the corpses of five fighters from Gaza to rot in the fields and on the side of the road, basically. And they were stripped down to their underwear because the IDF, you know, checks bodies and cars for explosives before they move anything or do anything else. And then we drove a little bit closer. We could hear gunfire and there was an incoming rocket that landed not too far from us. I think probably about 500, 600 meters. And that was when I decided that it was probably a good idea to turn around because even though in the morning the the army had said that Reim was um, secured, it wasn't. Yeah, it's it's really volatile down there still. In the face of that kind of horror, what has the Israeli government said they're now going to do to Hamas and to Gaza? I mean, different officials in Israel's security establishment and political establishment have been saying some pretty straightforward things. I mean, they say they're going to flatten Gaza. They say there's going to be no Hamas left after they're done with them. They're saying that Gaza is going to be a city of tents after this and not high-rise buildings that people have been forced to build because there's no space. They've had to build up instead of out. You have Gallant, the uh, Israeli defense minister, said that we are dealing with human animals, which gives you a sense of the tone and the desire for revenge and retaliation that exists in most of the country right now. But Bethan, you said that there were 2.3 million people in Gaza. They aren't all members of Hamas, not by a long shot. Hamas has done appalling, terrible things. They've completely obliterated the distinction between soldiers and civilians in Israel. Is there a concern that in its response... Israel is doing exactly the same thing. People in Gaza would say that Israel's never really cared about the distinction between Hamas militants and civilians in the Strip. I've spoken to dozens of people in over the years who have lost family members in Israeli airstrikes who have been targeted, you know, purposefully targeted when there's absolutely no indication that there's any Hamas activity there at all. Uh, There was a three-day flare-up in May this year in which I think something like 150 Palestinians were killed. And basically that's just so routine here that the, the rest of the world barely even noticed. And I was talking to, I went to see um, some of the IDF just after that, And they're always really curious, right? Because they can't go in. They're like, what's it like? You know, is it full of terrorists? And I'm like, no, it's got great seafood restaurants and 
everyone I know is lovely and they hate Hamas. They hate Hamas as much as you do because Hamas has trapped them in this nightmare. And so for civilians there now who are facing this unprecedented barrage, where can they go? There's a border south towards Egypt. Is there any chance they could escape through there? And if not, where do they go to be safe? There is nowhere to go to be safe. Israel has been telling people in Gaza to leave and to get out. At the same time, they have bombed the crossing at Rafah. What are you supposed to say to that? And I mean, even the people who are at Rafah right now trying to get out, as far as I know, the Egyptians are only letting out people who've got dual nationality of some other country who are on embassy lists. You know, it's difficult to get a permit to leave via Egypt at the best of times. Like most people who go, it's normally medical reasons or if you've got an onward flight from Cairo to somewhere else, um, because they don't want the people from Gaza and they think Israel is banking on being able to just, you know, displace 2.3 million people into the Sinai and make them Egypt's problem. And Egypt's over the years has been very, very, very clear that that is not something that they want. And that is still the case right now. So there is nowhere to go. Coming up, I speak to journalist Hazim Belusha on the phone from Gaza. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Today in Focus is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day... What would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash todayinfocus today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash todayinfocus. Hello? 
Hi, Hazem, how are you? I'm okay, thank you. Is it is it safe for you to talk where you are right now? Um, kind of. I can't. I can't guarantee that. But yeah, yeah, it's okay. Can you tell me uh, where it is that that you are right now? I'm in Gaza City. Actually, I am not in my place. I left my house um, yesterday afternoon, and I went to uh, um, a local hotel uh, near the city center in uh, near the harbor with my family my wife and two kids I had no internet at at the house and uh, since the day one as the lines were cut because of the bombardment and the telecommunication company couldn't fix it because of the continuous bombardment and airstrikes so I went to the hotel and I thought it's safer there um, it was okay till 2 a.m. I wasn't asleep. Some of the people in the hotel knocked the door and asked us to, to evacuate and to leave because there is a threat <clears throat> to hit the area. It was complete blackout in the area, no electricity, nothing is there. My kids were freaking out. My wife was crying. We rushed to pack all our stuff from the room. We walked to um, nearest place that we thought it's safe to stay overnight because there was no transportation. So we stayed the night there at the yard of the Shifa Hospital, the main compound in the Gaza city. Uh, we borrowed a mattress and a blanket from uh, some other journalists who are based at the Shifa reporting from there for my two sons and wife they they got some sleep it was it was it wasn't you know easy to be there it's my first time to be in such situation homeless nowhere to go not safe to go anywhere else really hasn't because you've covered this story you've lived this story for so many years this is the first time you've been in a situation this dangerous yes indeed um i have uh, covered um, four wars endless number of escalations um 2008 which was the toughest among the four 2021 but this time it's uncomparable what does gaza look like right now full of smoke the sky is black most of the time. Gaza City is um, the most uh, horrible situation ever. Power station, which produced 65 megawatts, cover 30% or even less for the Gaza needs, but keeping the line is cut today due to the shortage of fuel or run out of fuel, according to the power company. So people rely on generators, public generators, but I mean, it doesn't work or function all the time because there is shortage of fuel as well. Israel is banning all the types of, of, of goods and equipment or anything. Ministry of Health announcing that the medical supplies that they have wouldn't last for long. 
the occupation of bits is 100%. So last night, you know, I spent it at the Shifa hospital. What I have experienced overnight was shocking. I saw a tent funded by EU and it's become, I mean, I was wondering what, what is this tent for? And they said, this is for the buddies because the morgue is full. God. They asked me, do you want to have a look? I said, no. But a, f- a colleague of mine said, like, it's full of buddies. We hear, like, bombardment all the time from different places. Some people were listening to the radios to know what's happening, local radios, like, if they can tell where the bombardment or strike is, so they would know if the danger is close or not, or there is a threat. I see the people now in the streets, you know, people having bags, plastic bags, backpacks, and they have goods, and they had to evacuate again and again. The most uh, dangerous thing or terrifying thing, people don't know what's the end of this. You know, when is the end of this? If there is a ground invasion, as Prime Minister Netanyahu has said, is likely... What will that mean for you? What will that mean for people in Gaza? Gaza experienced ground invasion twice, once in 2008-9 and the other other time was 2014. And I remember those days were really, really awful and hard and devastating. I remember area called Shijaiya was really completely devastated at that time by artillery shells and tanks. Tens or hundreds of people killed and injured. So we don't know the, the, the plans of Israeli army. We don't know what they are going to do or where they are going to target. I mean, yeah, okay, you want to punish Hamas. Okay, go punish Hamas. But this is not Hamas. They are punishing the ordinary people. Neighborhoods where completely destroyed and destructed. But no Hamas people were killed there. Ordinary people were killed. Hazem, do you think Hamas knew that this would be the reaction? And if so, how do you think what's happening now to people like you and people around you fit into their plan? I don't know if they care. Maybe they are. They care. But I don't know if that was in their calculation. They said many times they know Israel would react harshly according to the, the previous experiences. But this, this time is different, totally different. And Hamas started the attack. It was out of sudden. There was no hints, nothing. You know, all, all previous experiences we had, like, you know, some hints. But this time came of nothing. Hasn't the reaction of, of much of the world has been to say that Israel has the right to defend itself and at this stage it shouldn't be held back in any way in what it wants to do in Gaza. Seeing what you're seeing, experiencing what you're experiencing, what do you want the world to know about Gaza and about the people in it? Well, I'm a Gazan. Plus, I'm a journalist, and I'm a father, and I have a family. I have beloved people here, so I care about, I think about, and I want them to be safe. Okay? 
the words say Israel has rights, uh, uh, right to defend itself. Defend it yourself. But what about those people, innocent people, including me, myself? You know, sometimes I'm hiding my tears on, on front of my wife and kids because um, I'm, I'm afraid about them. I don't know. I mean, I shouldn't say so, but I mean, <laughs> it's not easy as a father to, to experience the fear in the eyes of my kids. What are you telling your kids about what's going on? This is the hardest part, to be honest. This is the thing that I'm, I'm trying always to keep them away. Just to say when they hear bombardment, it's far away. We are safe. We are not an objective or a target for them. Sometimes they watch videos on YouTube and see civilians and kids are killed and they're wondering and asking me. I'm trying to lie sometimes and tell them like different stories, distract them, keep them busy. It's so terrible. How are you planning on... Oh, he's gone. It's just cut off. That was Hazem Belusha, a freelance journalist in Gaza. We've since been in touch and he's okay. Thank you so much to him, to Sharon Lifshitz, and also to Bethan McKernan, The Guardian's Jerusalem correspondent. We had also planned to speak with the award-winning journalist Anas Baba, who's also in Gaza, and featured on one of our episodes a couple of years ago. But as we started speaking, his area was heavily bombed. He's safe, and we hope he remains so, and we hope the same for everyone we've spoken to for this episode and for their loved ones. Anas's episode is called One Hour to Escape, the race to get out of a Gaza tower before an Israeli airstrike. You can Google it or find it at theguardian.com. And that is it for today. This episode was produced by Hannah Moore, Rose DeLarabiti, and Natalie Katanat. Sound design was by Solomon King. The executive producer was Elizabeth Casson, and we'll be back with you tomorrow. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.